sport bring a country together. I wanted to prove to myself. So he played the last five minutes with 10 wow. men because I was that man. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Rams TV podcast. It's episode five. Thank you for coming back. I know there was a little bit of a wait between episodes three and four. Hopefully we've made that up to you a bit by getting this one out uh, so quickly after. Having said that, today, I suppose, is technically the final episode of season one. Uh, but I am optimistic that it won't be too long until we kick off with series two. I've got a bit of a thank you to do at the end, uh, but we'll get to that because I don't want to keep you from this week's guest any longer. Michael Johnson is loved by pretty much everyone I've ever met in football. And there's good reason for that, as you'll hear. Uh, some brilliant stuff on the way from him. How a promise to his son ultimately led to him making history with Guyana. Tales of being taught a harsh lesson by a Neil Warnock and how a spot of gardening set him up to succeed. Uh, Why he's gone back to school to get ahead, uh, with some pretty famous classmates as well. And what I think is a great little story about getting some coaching from Ian Wright on the pitch. Stay tuned for that. Here we go then, here's Jono. Good afternoon, how are you? John? I'm good, how are you? Thank you for for getting together. We've been trying to sort it for a while, but you're you're a very busy man in in demand. You've been the busy one. I've been trying to catch hold of you, but now it's a pleasure to be here at last and obviously to to share insights. Yeah, and there is there is loads genuinely loads to talk about because success with Guyana recently, yeah. you've not long started with England under twenty ones. There's a playing career as well. Um let's start with that. From your playing career, yeah. who stands out for you in terms of either ability wise, teammates or, or more interestingly, characters. Who who were who are the guys that, that you always think of first? Um, big Darren Moore is one that always sticks out as a character. Um, I could go down in all the teams that I played for. You know, in Notts County coming through was Mark Draper and Tommy Johnson, two guys that I'm still in touch with today. At Birmingham City, you know, I look at somebody like Ian Bennett who's now a goalkeeping coach at Nottingham Forest. He stands out for being hilarious. And we travelled for nine years um, together. We'd always meet on the, the Hilton Hotel, just at the end of the A50 there. And then we'd take it in turns driving down the M42. And we did that for nine years. Um, so we always have this thing every Christmas because we always used to like the Chris Rear song, Driving Over Christmas. So even now, and I, and I left Birmingham some 15 years ago, even now, we still send each other the driving home for Christmas song every Christmas. So there's lots of players that really stand out for your careers for different reasons, whether it's somebody's funny, somebody's a great character like Moro, or somebody was a fantastic player like Christopher, Christopher Dugri, who played for France and won the 1998 World Cup with France. There can't be many players who, like you, are so well-loved and, and well-thought-of and claimed as much by so many different supporters. Because, I mean, at Birmingham, you're a legend. At Derby, you're an ambassador now. I know I've got a friend, Notts County fan, Ash, and you actually came to a a game with us a couple of seasons ago, playoff semi-final, which was brilliant of you to do. And the reaction of the Notts fans, you know, showed you how much they love you as well. Everybody sort of seems to want to claim you as their own. And and you don't get that with a lot of players. No, I think... um... How, How did you do that? I think number one, it's it's hard work and determination. I think everybody 
has a talent as that's why you're at a club for for a reason because you're a talented player whether that's as a defender or a wide player or a striker but I think there's a hidden thing that everybody recognises with and that's a working class mentality and if you can bring that to your game as well as the talent then the then fans will forgive you at times for having the off day because they know that what you're going to do is give 100% and that means maybe tracking back that means you know going into every tackle like you, you really mean it that means if you're dribbling and you've lost the dribble can you fight back and and, and win that ball back and so it's it's for me that was a a thing that I embedded in my career very early on that I knew that I was never going to be um, the, you know, a Messi or a Pele. But one thing that I always knew was that a Michael Johnson, when he crosses the white line, the manager will guarantee he gets 110%. How is it for you? And, and I saw it firsthand when, when we went to Madeleine for that game. How is it to you to get that reaction from, from fans? Do you know what? It's humbling. It really, really is humbling when you go... E- even back, even now? Yeah. Even when I go back to the former clubs, um, there's fans and there's even children's who weren't even born then who were recognizing you because your parents have told them about you or you you you're linked to some memorabilia or some footage um and it's great because as you said I can I can go back to your Notts County Sheffield Wednesdays your Birmingham's and I've always been greeted with the warm reception and I'm so pleased that I have been greeted with this warm reception because it's it's nice for my family to see that as well that you know, your father or your your husband is 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 thought of really well in certain areas of the UK. Is there a bit of grief that comes with it when Derby play Birmingham and everybody <laughs> sort of you know, uh, everybody yeah. sort of grabbing at you and, and wanting to know who who allegiances are? Yeah, and, and I think thing. I think. Do you remember when I, I compared it to your uh, a divorced wife? Yes, I remember <laughs> this. Yeah, very um, good. But yeah, it, it does. But I think fans, it's really difficult for fans to understand the, a fan's aspect, but then a player's aspect. So for the player, you play for a club and you, you, you get acquainted with that club and you always have fond memories and really enjoyed your time and you give 110%. Um, for the time you've been in. What fans can't grasp is when you now move over. And that's what happened with a lot of the Birmingham City fans in particular who couldn't quite grasp that when I actually moved over, I'm now representing Derby County. I have an affinity. So when the game comes up, I'm always there trying to explain the, the... you know, my thought process and that it will never die what happened at Birmingham City. I had some wonderful times there, but obviously now, you know, I want Derby County to win. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I mean, the emotions of it are very are very different, aren't they, from from a player or, or manager in the game to, to a supporter because a fan will have one, unless yep. they're very strange, will have one club for life. And I don't think they'll ever quite get the emotion of it. I mean, you're a Nottingham boy. Who, who yes. was your team growing up? So my teams growing up were more Notts County and Liverpool. I was a big Liverpool fan back in the day. I went to watch Nottingham Forest and that's why there was a, uh, people say, oh, he's a, he's a Forest fan. But actually at the time when I was growing up, Forest were in the top flight of English football. Mm. So it was great to go there and watch some of the, uh, the late 80s, early 80s teams under Brian Clough play. But not. But if you had to pick a local team, it was not. So, yeah. so you, in some ways, fulfilled the boyhood dream because yeah. you played for your club. Yeah, I played from for my club from the ages of fourteen. Um, uh, it, it, 
underneath Neil Warnock, who was my first manager. Um, you must have a, a Warnock story or two. Oh, you can there's, tell us. There, there, there's loads of Warnock stories. I mean, I, and and this one sticks out a mile. I remember I was 17 years old in the in the first year of the Premier League. Was it the first? No, it was the last year. Last year of the first division. And we played a game and we had a cup game against Wolverhampton Wanderers. And Steve Bull at the time was prolific for Wolverhampton Wanderers. I think actually Steve Bull went and played for England and was probably the only player in the third tier of English football to actually do it. That's how good he was. And he always used to make this near post run. So anyway, now I'm 17 years old and um, sub. So I'm the last sub to go on. So I, I go on the pitch. And at the time, the game was evenly poised about 2-2, two, two, 20 minutes to go. So anyway, now, um, I go on. Uh, myself, Craig Short was the, was the player as well. Um, we'll score 3-2. About five minutes left of the game, Steve Ball makes this near post, near post run past me, scores from the, the incoming cross, 4-2. As I'm walking back, remember, I'm the last sub. As I'm walking back, I see Warnock remonstrating as only Neil could do. You know, his arms are over, all over the place. He's, he's snarling. And then I see the uh, substitutes port go up and it says uh, number 14, Michael Johnson. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm the last sub. And as, you know, he's waving me off the pitch. So as I walk off, I remember the, the, <laughs> the guy saying number 14, Michael Johnson being replaced by nobody. And it was like a gasp in the crowd. Uh, but he, he'd done it to teach me a lesson. And as I walked past him into the dugout area, he said to me, I'd rather play with 10 than watch that, what you've just put out there. So he played the last five minutes with 10 wow. men rather than play me on the pitch because I was that bad. <laughs> But what Did he was, that not destroy you though? No, nah, I mean, I was, I think probably now you look back and you think, well, that might have been a bit harsh. But for me at the time, it was a, I'll, I'll show you sort of moment. My sleeves were rolled up and I was ready to, to get back to work. But what he tried, to, he tried in his own way to teach me a lesson. And to be, to be honest, it really did. Because through my whole career, I always used to analyse if I got done with a near post run. It would be, not to say that it never happened, of course it happened, but it would really eat at me and I'd have to analyse how he got across me at the near post. And it was something drilled into me from a very young age by Neil Warner. It's black and white and it's in your DNA, you. Get priority access to match tickets and a range of other benefits with Derby County's DNA home and away memberships. Home members can enjoy 20% discount and early access to home match tickets without having to pay booking fees online, whilst away members can claim priority access to purchase tickets for all away games. DNA home and away memberships are available to purchase now on dcfc.co.uk by visiting the Derby County Ticket Office presented by SeatGeek or by calling 0871 472 1884. You were manager of Guyana until not too long ago, and yeah. you've had caretaker spells as well. Yeah. Would you ever do that? No, I, I couldn't imagine you know trying to teach somebody a lesson in that way. But Neil had some strange ways about him, and he's gone on to you know the, I'm talking this was nearly thirty odd years ago, mm. so he's gone on to have a really established career, and I think he now holds the mantle as. Um, winning the most promotions from the championship to to the Premier League. So, you know, he's got some really good morals about him. And for me, you know, he's one of the top managers I worked for, for different reasons than just management. You hear that quite a lot, but 
players that played for him love him. Um, Shane Nicholson talked about how, and he did play for him actually, but he said, I always wanted to play for him. Yeah. What, what is it about him? Why, why do players love him so much? He's just got a way that, it tells you how it is. There's no cutting corners. There's no hidden agenda. It's all to be, everything's out. If you're not doing it, he's telling you there and then you're not doing it and the reasons why. And what that will allow you to do would be to go home and analyse it or to go home and adjust it. But what you know is where you stand. There's no, well, you know, did the manager like me or there's no, I got dropped on Saturday and I'm not sure why I got dropped and then you start sulking. There's none of that. And it doesn't, it didn't, it doesn't hold grudges. So he would tell you what he felt with you on the on, on the Saturday and Monday morning. He's the very first one working with you on the training ground. Um, so he's got some real good, strong morals that, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed. Um, really enjoyed. I mean, I'll tell you another quick story. Mick, well, Jones, Mick Jones was his assistant. And Mick Jones asked me to, 17 years old, I didn't have a car. And he lived somewhere near Leicestershire. And I had to find my way to his house. He was away on holiday. He left the key underneath the map in the back, in which he, them days you could. And he said to me, open the garage, get the lawnmower out and cut my grass at 17 years old. Now, the reason he wanted me to cut his grass, and it, it's, it's so surreal now when I look back, and he explained it to me was, he wanted to see the care and attention that I would give to his grass to see if that was the same care and attention that I would do, deliver as a footballer. I didn't know at the time. I just thought, you know, he's just wants me to cut his grass. Um, so anyway, now he's, he's only going away for the week and he comes back Monday morning and he gives me £30. Back then was eight weeks. I was £29.50 YTS. So it's a week's wages. And he said, the way that you cut the grass, you'll be a good player. And he evidenced cutting the grass alongside a professional footballer career. And I kind of think that maybe after you know, 20 years in the game, he probably wasn't far wrong. So Mick Jones and Neil Warnock did some strange things, but they were a good, good partnership together. We'll get more stories from, from your playing days as, as we go through. But, but as we're talking about a manager and an assistant manager that, that really clearly had an effect on you, let's talk about Michael Johnson, the manager, because you yeah. made a bit of history recently yes. with, with Guyana, um, which, which sort of came out almost out of nowhere. I think you told me about it. Oh, I'm going to be managing Guyana. And, and I didn't react this way, but I know a lot of people thought it was in Africa. They didn't even yeah. quite know where it was. Ghana. Um, how, how, so look, how does it happen, firstly? How does it happen? Well, first of all, I have to say thanks to Jason Roberts, who now is the Director of Youth Development for CONCACAF. So he's based in Miami. So CONCACAF deal with an area of the world, a region of the world, which is the Caribbean, um, South America countries, America and Canada. So there was a position what came up in Guyana, um, which is on the border of Brazil. Um, and he said to the, the Guyanese president, he says, look, I've just left England. I have access to maybe 10, 15 really good guys who would literally snap your hand off for your opportunity. So Jason put together a 10-man hit list, of which I was one. And they called me back and said, we'd like to interview you via Skype. Would you be interested? And... Um, I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to be interested. I'd love to be part of your um, interview process. And I remember speaking to Roy about it because I wasn't quite sure how he's going to work with the club and everything. Anyway, I did the interview process, then got a second interview. And at the end of it, they said, look, we want to offer you the opportunity to be the manager of Guyana. 
And then, you know, once you get the opportunity to manage a country, I think then it starts to really dawn on you the enormity of what's just happened. So I told the club, told Mel. Mel was really good about it. And my family was delighted. And there I was, the manager of Guyana. I can imagine the reaction of, of your boys. It must be, must it be was, pretty cool. That yeah. dad, dad is an international manager. But I mean, yeah, it's obviously a cool thing to do. But but why? Why, why were you interested? Why did you want to do it in the first place? I think there's something that, I wanted to prove to myself. So if, if it's amazing how your career mirrors you as a person. So my career was all about hard work, um, proving yourself, never giving up and being, you know, stubborn. And, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I won't stop until I get it. And I'd said to my, my children, when I'd just, my last year of playing, said one day your dad's going to be a, a head coach manager. And I got a caretaker role, but it wasn't quite the one. And I remember my lad about six years ago saying to me, he was about 10, 9, 10 at the time, Dad, you go to all these seminars and all these workshops, but yet you're still not a manager. Why? And I couldn't answer him. Could not answer him. And I had an, I had an indication as to what might be, but I didn't want to, to let him know. But deep down, I had a promise that my son had held. And I said to him, I'm going to I'm going to show you that hard work and really does pay. So it was important. There was more, there was a purpose behind it. And the purpose was not just for me to be a, a head coach manager, but also a purpose to show my children that if you work hard, anything's possible. So when I got the position and I eventually told my son, it was kind of one of those moments where it cemented something that was more than just about a managerial career. That's really lovely. Really lovely. No, it's, and, it's powerful. And and I guess there was a bit of sacrifice from their point of view as well because you were having to fly off to the other side of the world in international breaks and, you know, that affects the family as well. Yeah, but I think there was an understanding because they'd seen all the years' hard work. They'd seen all the qualifications I've put in, all the the finance getting qualified, the time away going to watch managers, going to watch clubs work, going abroad to see managers so for, for my family, it was a, a moment of your dad's, this is what your dad's worked so hard for. And there was a real understanding. And I couldn't have done it without my wife, honestly, because my wife's obviously there with my three children. And to have that understanding and that empathy at that moment in time is probably what makes us as a family so rounded. It was a, a beautiful moment, not just for me, but for everyone concerned. And, you know, you get the job, you get to the, the Gold Cup for the first time ever, first point, first goal, all the yeah. rest of it at the Gold Cup. And, and, and we have to be clear, this well, this isn't really a football nation traditionally, no. is it? And, and you, I remember you said to me, you've been, again, quite humbled by the reaction in Guyana Yeah, it's a, it's from a, everything you've done. It's a cricketing nation, uh, 177 in the world. The, they've never been to a major footballing tournament in their life. There's no professional league. There's no infrastructure as such. Um, and it was a case of when you go out there, just see what you can do, see if you can help. So when, and this is the thing, when I first went out there, and I remember it in one an article, the first thing I said is, um, we have to start believing that we can do we can do something specially. And that was my first my first interview. And I remember um, some of the media guys were like, this guy doesn't know what he's coming into if he's saying start believing. He said, we, we've never done anything. And I said, well, we need to start changing that. Even the tone what's in the media needs to change to excitement and getting people on this journey. So we set off on a journey. 
And the journey was number one about recruitment of the best players who could play for Ghana. And number two, really starting to give them an identity and connect with um, Guyanese um, people in Guyana. And we went on a year's journey of Nation League qualification camp um, games. We did really well. We had some really good um, results, particularly against Turks and Caicos, a beautiful place if you've never been. A good draw against Barbados. And the last game was against Belize. And this is the one that was so emotional. In a stadium that's really an athletics track, caters for 1,500, 2,000. We had over 5,000 people crammed in and were pouring in on the final whistle. And we beat Belize 2-1 on the night. And the whole stadium just absolutely erupted. Everybody sprinting on the pitch. The players congregated in the middle. And we all joined in a wonderful prayer time here. And all the fans were actually on top of us. And for the first time, the nation had qualified for something. And there was grown men, children, just crying. And it was great to see sport, football in particular, bring a country together. And I think that's why it's not just about football. It's... Football can be used for so much good. And the fact that youngsters now have got resources going into Guyana uh, and now Guyana is now visible on the footballing map. So Brazil will now play them as opposed to Brazil used to say, we'll, we'll beat you 15, 20 nil. Now they realise getting to a major competition like that, Guyana is worth a, worthy of a seat at the table. And now um, football now in Guyana for boys and girls now becoming a special place. How much of a wrench was it to leave, given all that, that you did for them and achieved with them? It was a wrench because you you meet you make some special friends, um, acquaintances, you get accustomed. Now, I'm, I'm an emotionally guy, you know, I, I, I love people and there's certain people you get attached to. And there's some really good people in Ghana who I'll stay close with for the rest of my life who I believe, you know, you know can help Ghana now move up the uh, football ladder. It's bon uh, every time you say it, it always there's no professional league yeah. over there. Where did you where did you get your players from? Where was you, where did your squad come from? A lot of the squad when we when they heard the announcement of myself and Paul Williams, um, they started to really believe that something serious is going in in at Guyana. So we had a lot of players who reached out through social media networks. This is why social media is so fantastic. Well. Has its drawbacks. Can, can be, yeah. yeah. Has its drawbacks, but yeah, it can be used as a very good tool. And we started to um, really look through the um, the diaspora and second and third generations to find out which players, particularly low down in the English pyramid and Canada and America, would qualify to play for Ghana. And we probably found 10, 10 to 12 players who literally gave a new identity to Guyanese football. But with it, what happened was the training sessions went up because of the professionals of the training sessions. The standard of the training session because of the players now, which brought it up. But what was great was to see now the local talent rise with everything. Mm. So they started to improve in that year to 15 months I was down there, just based on little things that we did to draw the program up. Do you have any plans to, to head back over and, and see them again? Or um, I'll definitely keep watching the games and I'm sure I'll cross, our pass will cross it someday. So I'd say, yeah, I mean, I'm, like I said, I, I want them now to do really well. And I have no, no regrets about what happened. And I like to think the legacy of, of our stewardship is a positive one. And that's something now which will start to ignite Guyanese football. 
we should go back a step or two as well because sort of prior to getting the job uh, and I guess as part of the process of getting the job was these qualifications that you've done and you know every now and again we'd see each other at a game and it'd be oh John I've not seen you for a couple of weeks where have you been and it'd be oh, I've been in Geneva or I've been at PSG yeah. or so explain to people sort of what you're doing in those sort of places you did two two courses is yeah that right? so I've done two master's degree courses and um, so the first one is with the Manchester Metropolitan University, where I did a two-year course, where at the end of every month, I would go up to Manchester for three days and study. And then you'd have to, at the end of every quarter, deliver an assignment. And the final one was a 25,000-piece dissertation. And my dissertation was exploring the culture of World Cup and Champions League Cup winners to find out what the English game could potentially learn from the, from the guys, um, both managers and players who had been at the elite level, what was it that drove them? Was it something from the childhood? Was it some their, their training, their, the way they lived their life? I wanted to learn what is the culture of the elite players and how that potentially could help players and, and of this generation. So that was the one at Manchester. What was, what was that course called? It was called the Sporting Director. Um, course from Manchester University um, and I graduated with a distinction in June so that was great I then also went on um, a UEFA for Masters for international players so this was a really interesting one because it was around the world but what was really fascinating was it's for international players so there was a criteria for you to get on this number one you'd have to uh, played at the top level in your country so fortunately I managed to play in the Premier League but you'd also then have to represent your country so the the, the standard of the, the, the candidates that were on this course were of high calibre you know you're talking you know proper people from Barcelona and um, Real Madrid PSG Bayern Munich give us uh, some names who, 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 um, who are you on the course with so I'm on the course with Eric Abidal who's now the Barcelona um um, sporting director um, Maxwell who's the Barcelona uh, sorry PSG sporting director um, Yori Jorkeyev um, Gilberto Silva Louis Garcia the names you could just keep going on it really really is a, a fascinating course uh, um, are these people in the phone book now? yeah the personal friends of mine which are which are around the world, which is fantastic to see. Gazeta Mendieta, another one. There's some really, really good names now. And I've uh, passed on, on that one as well with a distinction again. And on this one now, I was looking at player passport that the game might be able to benefit from a collection of data that would enable the players to leave a club with something. I've left my career with absolutely nothing. But it would be great if I could motivate and inspire the next generation by saying that Michael Johnson's height, height of his career, this is what he was doing. So sports science, nutrition, everything, and what a player, high intensity runs, distance covered, what was the maximum I did in a game? So it was trying to look at the player passport and to see if we had one, how would it help a manager make better um, influence decisions because now it's data you're dealing with as opposed to you know I've got a hunch that this is no it, it would be factual so it would benefit managers players clubs and countries so that's what I did is data the biggest change from when you were a player 110% I think data is a massive 
game changer now. Everybody's, you know, wants more data. It will never replace what I believe is the core thing about football. Which is? I just think you cannot buy somebody's heart to be a, become a footballer. When I woke up that morning, I woke up as a child, I didn't think about data. I thought about my love of football and I got better and better. But the love of football drove you to be better. The love of football and the humility that helps you improve because you're humble enough to say, I want to get better, is a real driver about how does a person get better and better. It's character. It's integrity. It's honesty with yourself about becoming the best that you can be. And I think once um, managers and owners and sporting directors tap into the person and find out what kind of character that person is, because if you can improve the person, the person, the person will get better within the data that says actually is more in the locker. But it's about the person. You could have as much data as you want, but if that person doesn't have the humility to listen to the data, it's irrelative. But if you have the correct characters within a football club, within an academy that want to get better, that want to learn, that are humble, then you've really got what I believe is the core trait of a winner. And I think when you look at the, the characters like your Ronaldo's, your Messi's, they all had a humility, but a real desire to improve. So whilst I understand data, it will never swap. It will never swap 50 years ago what was needed to win a league is the same 50 years ago what now needed to win a league. You need commitment. You need hard work. You need honesty. You need trust. You need commitment. All these things 50 years ago when Liverpool were winning the leagues and Man U's are still the same today. But obviously, the tactical side of the game's changed. Enjoy a leader's experience in the Captain's Club at Pride Park Stadium. It's hospitality, but not like you know it. The Captain's Club at the Dave Mackay Suite offers the best vantage point of the stadium, accompanied by great food and regular visits from Derby County captains, past and present. Available on a seasonal or match-by-match basis, the Captain's Club is the perfect way to watch the Rams in style. Visit dcfc.co.uk for full details. Would you be a better player playing now, have, having all the attributes yeah. you had, but also with all the, the modern stuff, the data, the tracking, the analysis, would you be a better player? 100% because I'd, be, I'd be, be driven with my, with my character that I know I, I have. I would be driven to be the best that I can be given the data that I can now reflect on. We did have elements of data towards the back end of my career. It was just starting to come in, but now the data is just... If you want it, it's there. And this is where I think the humility of the players now need need to really want it. Because the finances changed, the money's now changed. A lot of players, not all, are money-driven. But if you have a real sincere love to football, you can take a club, you can take yourself wherever you want to, just by being really diligent and hard-working. Let's talk about Michael Johnson, the player again for for a few moments what are the proudest moments of your career working in England is probably the one for me at the moment in time I never thought as a player I'd never I mean I played for Jamaica um but to represent England in any in any field is a massive achievement and for me to you know to 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 pull on that that jersey and I'm a I'm a I'm a guy that has a strong faith and so for me to 
to feel what happened to me. And I, I thank God every day for the opportunity to really, you know, pull those three lines on. As a player, it's my two um, two promotions, one with Birmingham City in 2002 and obviously the one with Derby 07-08 season. I'm going to do what those fans do. Is one of those better for whatever reason, either of those promotions? I'd have to say the first one. And the first one because you've never done it before. But the first one was a a dream of as a child, and this you know, talking about the character and wanting to I dreamt as a child when I used to watch the FA Cup finals and see so many people climb, I think it's 72 stairs as you go to lift the trophy. I watched all the Everton, Liverpool teams, Man United teams, Tottenham teams back in the day as a nine, ten year old growing up. And I used to practice walking, walking, going up the stairs. <laughs> I really did. Um, used to put a my mum's cup um, teacups upstairs on the top landing and walk up the stairs and lift them after the after certain games I'd Brilliant. won. So the reason I say that is when you capture yourself, you know, 10, 15 years later, and that moment when you were lifting in your mum's, now you're walking up the stairs to go and lift that promotion trophy to Derby County and you see the fans roaring. It's a moment that, you, and Birmingham City as well, it's a moment that you'll never forget. Did you think back to your mum's stairs? Absolutely, because you've come a long way. You've come a long Love way from, from where you was, this snotty-nosed teenager who had a dream and then, you know, you, you fast forward 30 years ago and you can see the very people who watched you go up the stairs and laughed in the crowd and you're going, it's happened, it's happened. It's a, it's a real moment. Did you have a a moment or a performance where you ever thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be all right here as a, as a professional. Maybe not I've made it, but yeah, I'm going to make a career out of this. Yeah. My debut was against, it was against Ian Wright at Highbury. And he was the then record signing of 2.5 million. And uh, we lost 2-0. But, and even to this day, um, and I saw Wright, a couple, I think a couple of years ago, I'm not sure if you did it. There was an event where Ian Wright was in the stadium and on that day when I made my debut, I remember him coming over to me and, and just explaining to me about little parts of my game. He said, you're going to be a good player, but you need to be aware of this. You're getting too tight to me so that I can now spin you. And I don't care how quick you are. Somebody's quicker than you or just as quick you won't catch. So these little things. He said this after the game too. After too. the game. Now, I'm 17 years old. So two years ago, I was in a school connecting Panini, remember the Panini stickers and having him on my wardrobe two years forward, two years, this guy that I've collected on my wardrobe is now explaining to me about how I should play the game. And that was a moment when I realised that if you're going to take this seriously, you've got a chance. And that's where your hard work starts to really kick in. Is that a regular thing? Because I, would, I wouldn't have thought that a player at any level would go to an opponent after a, after a game and say, you should be better at this, do this, do this? I think there's certain players that, that um, <laughs> certain players that do it. I, I remember speaking to Jason Robertson, he was explaining about Marcel Desailly during the game. And Marcel Desailly did the similar thing to Jason. He was coaching him, so playing Jay against him so during Jason the game. So Jason Roberts is about to make a run and Marcel Desailly holds his shirt says, you go too soon. You go too soon. And then he pushes him and goes, go now. <laughs> and 
And this is during the game. Playing against whilst him. playing the game. Whilst playing the game. So you, you have certain players who are that comfortable within their armory that they have the insight and knowledge to actually help you during a game. And in my case, sometimes after the game. Did you ever do it? As I got older, yes. Did you? As I got older, I did it with a lot more of the younger players. Um, some of them still play now. Um, some of them we laugh and joke about it. But because you're so experienced now, you know when the ball's coming, you know when to get tight, when to come off. You, you start to see the game. And what you try and do is pass down some of those words of wisdom um, to some of the players. And this is why it's interesting when you're now giving back in football because you can already start to understand what's going to happen or when a person should go, when you see it a lot more quicker than what you did 10, 15 years ago when you were probably 18, 19, 20, just starting the game. Just just on England, back to England briefly, you've, you've gone in there with, with England under-21s with Eddie Boothroyd. Talk to me about your first day at St George's Park because, and we said this on the Derby County show when we talked about it, I've been a couple of times, I saw Seth Blatter there of all people yeah. a few years ago when he was opening a, a medical centre or something. And if you've never been, try and get yourself on a tour uh, just to have a look around because it's it's an incredible facility. So how was it for you, day one, in the tracksuit? I don't know if you've got an office or a desk or yeah. if you're hot seat or what, but, but, but hot what, seat. What, was it, what was it like? It was an unbelievable experience, you know, just to be, you know, done in the colours, the three lines, in an environment where it's the elite. And just being able, I saw Eric Steele as well, by the way, up there as well, which was great. It made me feel very comfortable. And just being able to to work with the elite players. And I'm not just talking work with them, you know, on the field, just being able to give something back, insights. Um, you know, they're asking questions which you can um, relate to. And it was just a surreal moment, you know, that, you know, here you are, you know, your age, you know, your time of your life where you wouldn't have thought it would be impossible. You're representing your country. And it doesn't get any bigger than that for me. Do you miss playing? Um, I don't think there's anything like playing. I would say that. I don't miss it as such, but I would definitely miss not being involved in football. Football, as I said, has been my life since I was 14 years old. Have you never had the opportunity or thought about something outside the game? Has it just never crossed your mind? Um, I did at one point when I had a real bad moment where I was just thinking it's a waste of time getting qualifications I'm going to do something else and if if it wasn't for Big Darren Moore threatening me <laughs> really? yeah um, there was a um, workshop at West Brom and I'd, I'd had enough of workshops had enough of um, a pro license and I decided that one particular workshop I'm not going and I you know me and Moore are best of friends and I said to Moore the night before I'll see you in the morning seven o'clock I woke up and I just said to him I'm sacking this off. I'm not going anywhere. I've just had enough more. What's the point in traveling all the way around the world and paying all this money? And he said to me, he said, look, if you don't, if you're not in your car in the next 45 minutes, I'm promising you, Michael, Jono, he calls me. I promise you this, Jono, I'll be up that motorway to grab you by the scruff of your neck and put you in the car with me. Get your ass out of bed and get dressed. And I laid down for like literally two minutes and I went, oh, flipping hell. And I got up yeah. and I got showered and got dressed. And that enabled me to get my UEFA Pro license. And in that same trip, Brendan Rogers did a talk and he said, 
And when you're out of work, now's the time to work. Meaning that when you're out of work, go and get yourself busy. Go and watch managers, people train, use your contacts. And that was another period of my life that switched me around again and started me back coaching and getting involved again. I love more, uh, even more after hearing that story. Have you got another Darren Moore tale? Just to finish, because he's he's such a brilliant guy. <laughs> have you got there, another, there, have you got a Darren Moore and, and Michael Johnson double act story or something? There, there are so many stories of, with with me and Moore. I mean, we, we went to the the Germany World Cup together in, in was it two thousand and eight or six when it was in Germany, and we spent a week there together, just roommates. Um, we were roommates, you know, my time at Derby. Does he it, snore? If he did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> no, he does. He, he snores. The big man snores. I think that, you know, the, the big man is just brilliant. I, I always remember when um, he's huge, muscular-wise, mm. and his hamstrings are just absolutely frightening, but he's scared, he's scared of acupuncture. And this one particular game, and he'll know if he listens, he'll know, this one particular game, he really wanted to play. And we had a chiropractor called Sophie at the time. And Sophie was doing everything to manipulate his back, but because he was so big, it wouldn't crack. So she said, there's only one thing, Darren, and, he's, and, <laughs> and, she, and Dad says, what is that? What is that? He says, I'll do anything to play. She says, acupuncture. And his face literally went, and all the lads are cracking because we always knew he was scared of acupuncture. Anyway, it's lied down and the needles, got, the first one's gone in just below his backside. And the second one's just about to go in. And his muscle literally left his leg and it rose about an inch when he tensed it because he was that scared. And because he tensed his muscles, everybody literally was like, oh my word. And Soph was trying to bang the needle in, but because he's, it was that solid, his muscle, the needle wouldn't go in. And she said, Darren, I can't get the acupuncture in because he had literally gripped the, the, the couch that hard because he was petrified wow. of the acupuncture. Wow. And, and so the big man really, really won his stripes that day. The lads were just like, listen, amazing. This guy's amazing. An absolute gentleman off the field, um, but he's one of those that you, you wouldn't want to uh, cross paths on the field. Did he play the game? Was he fit? Yeah, he was he was immensely fit, immensely a tough worker. But but that but that game he was trying to be available for. Did yeah, he, he was did fit. He make it. Yeah, he'd made it. He made it through. The, he made it Brilliant. through the game somehow. Brilliant. It was a, honestly, he's a great guy. I mean, you know him. He's he's yeah. a great guy. Yeah, and yeah. for me, we've uh, you know you you talk about friends. You know, in, in football, for me, he's a real close friend. You know, somebody that I can speak to about football and my faith as well. He's a great guy. I know he's a busy guy at the minute, obviously. Um, yeah. But we'll, uh, we'll maybe we'll do our best to try and get him on and, and get some Michael Johnson stories. Um, Jono, we, we've taken up enough of your time, but we'll get you back on at some point because there's still loads we could talk about. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Stop, man. Thank you again to Jono and to all our guests from season one of the show. As I said earlier, hopefully it won't be long before we're back. Uh, but when we come back, we will have a new producer. And that's the big thank you, I need to say, really, because Adam, who's the man who's really done all the hard work on this, is moving on. He's swapping Rams TV for a new life in Canada, which is fair enough, really. Uh, so, Adam, thank you. You're a top lad, mate. You're brilliant at what you do. And we're all really going to miss you. And with that, I'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.